Hello, and welcome to episode two of Sam Splaining Science. I'm Sam. I'm your host. I'll be Sam Splaining the Science. Today, we're talking about the science of what might be one of my all time favorite hobbies sleep. Let's get to it. How are you doing? I hope your 2022 is off to a good start, whatever that means for you, whether it's getting organized, getting stuff done, getting rest, hopefully a nice balance of all three. Last episode, we talked about goal setting and we had science back tips on how to set goals that we're most likely to achieve. Um, If you didn't listen to that episode, that's fine. Uh, This podcast is not cumulative, so you can listen like whenever in any order you want to or in no order at all. (laughs) Um, But I think that the goal setting episode being released right at the beginning of the new year, maybe it had us feeling motivated, but maybe it also had us feeling pressured. Like we need to get a lot of stuff done and we need to be at our most productive and we need to hit the ground running. And sometimes those things are good, but today's episode serves to remind us of the importance of rest. I feel like I've heard quote unquote successful people say things like, I only sleep for four hours a night because that means that I get four extra hours of work in during the day. You know, sort of that the grind doesn't stop mindset. And while that might seem like one way to get the most amount of stuff done during the day to maximize your productivity as you work towards your goals, it's actually not super great for your overall health. So maybe the grind should stop sometimes. So in today's episode, we're talking about it. We're talking about sleep, the importance of sleep with science. I have a few questions lined up that will help us learn about sleep. Um, Questions for me are always a good way to sort of organize my research. Like, what do I not know? Like, where do I start? And I think the questions are so important to learning things, you know? It It shows what you... It shows that you know what you don't know, which is very, very valuable when you're trying, especially in science, because in science, we're trying to discover the unknown. And sometimes knowing what is unknown is half the battle. So that's my tip of the day. Never be afraid to ask questions. Always be asking questions. It doesn't make you sound stupid because it actually makes you smarter free tip for you. Um, but today, the first questions for today are, what is sleep? What's going on in our brains and our bodies while we are asleep? The next question is, what happens if we don't get enough sleep? So as always, the sources that I used to research for this episode are in the episode description. So if you want to check them out for yourself, or if you want to learn more, if you want to fact check me, please do. You can find them in the description. The first question we should tackle is what is sleep? What's happening in our brains while we sleep? So our brains have tons of cells in them. And by tons, I mean billions with a B. The functional cell, the cell in the brain that like makes all of the magic happen is called the neuron. In our brain, neurons 
send signals to each other. They talk to each other by sending electrical signals. And these electrical signals fluctuate. They ebb and flow as very fast waves. We can think of them as sort of like a waveform. And we can measure these waves as a function of how strong they are or the amplitude of the wave, which defines how high or low the wave signal goes. So how tall the hill is or how deep the valley is as well as the frequency, which is how fast the wave signals repeat. We can use an EEG or an electroencephalogram, if you like big words, which I don't. So we use an EEG to measure these wave signals. In order to take an EEG, you can wear a cap or a helmet thing that's covered in electrodes. And these electrodes can measure the electrical signals that are happening in your brain. So we can see how strong and how often the electrical signals in the brain are sent when we're hooked up to an EEG, and that tells us about our brain's activity. Depending on our state of consciousness, the wave signals in the brain show up in different patterns, um, which are also called like brain waves. So let's go over a few different patterns or types of brain waves. The different types of brain waves are named by the Greek alphabet, which I recognize in today's climate of living through the coronavirus pandemic might be a little triggering, but the Greek alphabet is used a lot in science. So you just gotta get used to it, babes. Sorry, but get used to it. Life's tough, get a helmet. That was a Boy Meets World reference. And if you get it, we can be besties. And if you don't, turn turn off the podcast. We're done. Just kidding. Please stay. Okay. So some examples of brain waves are delta waves. So the first example is a delta wave. Delta waves are low frequency waves, which means that they're slow. They don't repeat very frequently. But they do have a high amplitude, which means that they have really tall hills and deep valleys. These delta waves are usually seen during deep sleep. The next example we have are theta waves. Theta waves have a higher frequency than delta waves, and they're seen sort of in this middle ground between sleep and wake states. So as you're sort of drifting off to sleep or as you're getting drowsy, your brain will have theta waves. Alpha waves are present when you're awake. They're larger and relatively lower frequency brain waves. Um, And they're seen when your brain is aware, but idle. Like you can respond if you need to, but you're sort of at this baseline level of awakeness, which might not be a word, but don't come at me. So it's kind of like you're you're sitting on the couch rewatching Gilmore Girls for the 80th time And you hear someone in the other room say your name and you're like, wait, what were you talking about me? And it's sort of that before you're hyper aware, you're just sort of like existing. Those are when alpha waves are predominant. And the last type of brainwave we'll talk about is a beta wave. So beta waves are small, so they're like shorter. They have shorter peaks and shorter valleys and they're very fast. So they repeat really quickly. These are most common when we are awake and alert, when we're focused, when we're concentrating. Like right now, as you're concentrating on listening to this very interesting and riveting podcast, beta waves are going absolutely berserk in that beautiful brain of yours. 
But as we get more and more tired, the beta waves can change their form to increase their amplitude so they get taller. They start to resemble those theta waves as we get more drowsy, as we drift off to sleep, as we're in those in-between states. So those are a few examples of types of brain waves. And when someone wears an EEG while they're awake and nodding off to sleep, we can see that these brain waves present themselves at different stages of sleep. So that sleep stages can be characterized by what types of brain waves are happening in the brain at that point in time. So now that we know different types of brain waves that exist, let's talk about the different stages of sleep. So stages of sleep are classified into two different types. The first type is REM, or REM, it stands for rapid eye movement. And the second type is very creatively named non-REM. Uh, while we sleep, the brain cycles through these stages multiple times. So for, you know, if we sleep for eight hours, it'll go through a few cycles of each stage. So let's start with when we're awake. Remember, when we're awake, if we're concentrated, there are lots of beta waves. If we're idle, lots of alpha waves. As we drift off to sleep, our beta waves start to resemble theta waves, and we shift into non-REM stage one sleep, or N1. This is the lightest stage of sleep. We see, you know, beta waves and theta waves, as I mentioned, and this stage lasts about one to five minutes. It's relatively quick. After N1 comes N2, or non-REM stage two. During this stage, it is predominantly theta waves that we see, and uh, it lasts about 25 minutes, but gets longer with each sleep cycle. And it's also in this stage where physiologically, in our bodies, our heart rate drops and our body temperature drops. The next stage that we move into is N3, or non-REM stage 3. Um, this stage is predominantly the delta waves, which are the high-amplitude, low-frequency waves that indicate the deepest level of sleep. This stage, it's been shown that the body uh, repairs tissues, builds bone, muscle, strengthens the immune system. So it's very important for like recovery and regeneration, this deep sleep stage, which is N3. And the fourth stage, the final stage, is REM sleep. Um, so REM sleep is associated with dreaming, you might have heard. Uh, the EEG, the EEE. -E -E. <laughs> The EEG signals, I, I really do be cracking myself up, you know, I'm very funny. Um, the EEG signals during stage four REM sleep are actually pretty similar to when you're awake. So they have these sort of high frequency waves, um, but your skeletal muscles during stage four are atonic, which means that they're basically paralyzed. You can't move your body. The only muscles that are not atonic in your body at this point are your eye muscles and your diaphragm muscles that are responsible for your breathing. So you can't move, but your eyes, like you can't move your body, but your eyes are moving around rapidly, hence the creative name rapid eye movement or REM sleep. 
um, and your breathing might be somewhat irregular. REM stages start at around 10 minutes long um, with the first sleep cycle, but get longer as the cycles progress. The last REM cycle of the night could be up to 60 minutes long. So those are the stages of sleep. One other thing that I kind of want to talk about before we get into some of the studies that we're going to look at today are is um, circadian rhythms. So circadian rhythms, you might have heard this term before. It's basically our body's internal clock. It tells us when we should be asleep, when we should be awake. It also plays a role in more physiological things in our bodies like body temperature, blood pressure, hormone releases, appetite, and more. And our circadian rhythms can be affected by things including environmental factors. So daylight or lack of it in the winter, light from electronic devices, jet lag, working night shifts, etc. Okay, so that should hopefully give us a good handle on question one, which was what's going on in our bodies and our brains while we're asleep. We kind of understand now the the brainwave signals, the stages of sleep. So now let's move on to question two, where we're going to talk about why is this so important? What happens if we don't get enough sleep? There are a lot of studies that suggest that proper sleep is critical for physical, mental, and emotional well-being. For today's episode, I want to talk about not really the benefits of good sleep, but instead talk about the detriments of poor sleep. So if you're someone who doesn't get enough sleep, this will be your scared straight program. It's actually, I'm the one who needs the scared straight program. I'm the someone who doesn't get enough sleep. (laughs) To start, I wanted to review a recent study by Dr. Motomura and colleagues out of Japan. They explored how sleep deprivation affected mood and brain function. This was actually a pretty cool study. In this study, 18 men underwent evaluation after two lab visits that lasted two nights each. So one was a sleep control session and one was a sleep debt session. For each of these sessions, each night, each of the two nights, their brainwaves quality of sleep was measured with polysomnography, which I feel like is the science world directly attacking me for making me say words that I don't know how to pronounce. It is a comprehensive test used to diagnose sleep disorders. They could have just said that, but instead they said that word. It's also abbreviated as PSG, but okay. So I'm going to call it PSG. Um, (laughs) So they used PSG to measure, uh, the sleep quality, they took measurements of the time that each participant spent in light sleep stages, so those first non those first two non-REM sleep stages. They also measured the time in the deep sleep stage N3 and the time in REM sleep, as well as the total sleep time among other measurements like body temperature and breathing rate. So these measures were taken both nights at night one and night two, but they were only analyzed for night two because they use night one sort of like as a test night 
to get the participants used to like the machinery and sleeping with a helmet and whatever. But the actual data that they report is from the second night. After the second night, in addition to this PSG data collection, participants underwent resting state functional magnetic resonance imaging, or RSFMRI, from which they can determine how well brain regions are functionally connected. So with resting state fMRI, they get this measure called functional connectivity, which tells you how closely related or how correlated the activity of different brain regions are to one another. So like when one area of the brain is activated, if a different area is very functionally connected to it, it will also be activated. And also when the area is not activated, when it's sort of at rest, the different area that is very functionally connected to it should also be not activated or at rest. So they can measure how strong this connection is, this activity connection is between two regions and report that measure as functional connectivity. So that's the resting state fMRI method. So they measure that after night two. The third part at the data collection, in addition to the PSG sleep study and the resting state fMRI, is that the, they had the participants fill out surveys to determine their mood scores. So this included, included, <laughs> included, <laughs> this included the Stanford Sleepiness Scale, or SSS, and it included the State Trait Anxiety Inventory State Score, or the anxiety score essentially. On this test, the anxiety test, the higher the score, the more anxiety that they felt. So those are sort of the data points, the sleep study, the fMRI, and the mood scores. Remember though that there were two types of lab visits the participants came in for. One was the sleep control session where participants were allowed to sleep for up to nine hours on back-to-back -back days, which sounds like heaven if you ask me. The other session was a sleep debt session where they had two consecutive nights of three hours of bedtime, which sounds like not heaven, if you ask me. So then once they finished both sessions, they compared the sleep debt results to the sleep control results for each of the three outcomes, the sleep study, the resting state fMRI, and the mood scores. So that was the experimental setup. Now let's get to the results. First, the researchers reported that after consecutive days of sleep deprivation, so after the sleep debt session, participants felt significantly more sleepy based on their Stanford sleepiness scale scores, which I'll take LOL duh for 200, Alex. <laughs> like, oh, that's sad. Pour one out for Alex, RIP. But that's like pretty obvious, right? Considering the time in bed was limited to three hours versus nine, that's pretty obvious. But they wanted to use that to make a point in saying that they also found that the sleep debt session had higher mood scores on the anxiety inventory scale, which basically means that the participants felt more anxiety after their sleep debt session than they did after their sleep control session. In terms of their 
quality of sleep measurements, participants had significant differences in the total sleep time, which again, that's just the LOL duh for 400 category because they slept more in the nine hours versus the three hours. But they also had significantly reduced time in REM sleep between the two sessions. Interestingly, though, the slow wave sleep or the deep wave sleep, uh, the N3 stage that we talked about earlier, was not statistically different between sleep debt and sleep controls. So the time they spent in deep sleep was the same whether they slept for nine hours or slept for three hours. And with this, when they calculated the percentage of total sleep time that was slow wave sleep, where they take the time in slow wave sleep divided by the total time that they were asleep, that number was significantly higher in sleep debt than it was in sleep control. So like hypothetically, if they spent one hour in slow wave sleep during both sessions, the same, then the percentage during the sleep debt session was one over three or 33% in deep sleep. Whereas the percentage during sleep control was one over nine, which is like 11% during uh, 11% in deep sleep. So much higher in sleep debt than in sleep control. But this was not the case with the percentage of the REM time. So the REM time was not different between the two sessions. The authors say that these results suggest that the sleep deprivation might cause the brain to go into what they call sleep homeostasis, where the sleep architecture in the brain is changed to increase the proportion of slow wave sleep so the deepest, most important for recovery, regeneration of your muscles, bones, immune system, etc., uh, increase the proportion of that to the total sleep time. So I'm kind of interpreting this to me like maybe they prioritize the most important sleep, so they increase the slow wave sleep proportion when we experience sleep deprivation. Maybe. That's how I'm taking it, and I'm running with it. Then for the last part, they talk about brain imaging, which is my favorite part. So for the resting state fMRI study, the researchers found that the functional connectivity between the amygdala and the medial prefrontal cortex was significantly lower after the sleep death session than after the sleep control session. So what does this mean? Let's talk through it. The amygdala is the part of our brains that processes fear. It's one of like its most important roles is fear processing. And it's implicated in anxiety disorders. It basically tells us when to be afraid. And the prefrontal cortex in humans is a part of the brain that does a lot of the thinking, right? It does decision-making, rationalizing, thought processing, etc. So the amygdala is telling us, hey, this thing is scary. And then the prefrontal cortex says, yeah, it is scary. We should run away from it. Or... No, it's actually not a danger. Take a chill pill. Relax. So if the functional connection between the amygdala and the prefrontal cortex is reduced, as they saw after sleep debt, it would make sense that the feeling of anxiety were poorly regulated, right? If these two regions aren't working as well together after sleep debt as they were after a solid night's sleep, then it would make sense that the self-reported anxiety scores showed more anxiety after sleep debt, right? Because the amygdala is saying, I'm anxious, I'm, I'm afraid, and the 
the prefrontal cortex, which usually keeps it in check, is not really vibing with it, to use the kids' lingo of, the, of today's world. So basically this reduced functional connectivity from the imaging data reinforced what the mood score showed, which is pretty cool. They got all of that from sticking some sleepy dude's heads into a magnet. So cool. I love science. Ah. <laughs> Maybe that's just me. Relax, Sam. All right. So that was the first study, right? They found that sleep debt is associated with poor mood and anxiety regulation. Not only that, they came with photographic evidence. Crazy. We love it. All right. So now let's move on to a different study. So this new study uh, was published in 2019. It investigated the effect of sleep on physical health. So this study was published by Dr. Cabeza de Baca and colleagues, and they looked at the impact of sleep debt on cardiovascular health in over 22,000 older females around age 70 on average. In this study, they defined sleep debt not really like sleep deprivation, like the previous study did, but more as like a sleep dysregulation. So in other words, they defined it as a difference of at least two or more hours between the average time spent sleeping during the work week and the average time spent sleeping during the weekend. And these were based on self-reported sleep times. Um, so basically like if I sleep for five hours a night during the work week and eight or nine hours on the weekend, that's the sleep debt that they're talking about, this sort of differential time spent sleeping. Making up for sleep on the weekend, I think, is what they're really getting at, right? Like, does that really work? Is that healthy? That's what this study is addressing. Here, the researchers evaluated middle-aged and older female health professionals who had no history of cardiovascular disease or cancer, and they evaluated them for sleep debt and ideal cardiovascular health while considering other factors, including age, race, ethnicity, education, depression, anxiety, symptoms, stress, and snoring frequency. So as I mentioned, the researchers measured sleep debt based on the difference in time between the work week and the weekend. They defined ideal cardiovascular health which I might just call cardio, cardio health to make it easier. Um, they defined that based on lifestyle and physiological factors, including smoking status, BMI, physical activity, diet, blood pressure, cholesterol, and type 2 diabetes status. So each of these factors was scored on a scale from 0 to 1. So zero was an indicator of ideal health. So let's just take the smoking status, for example. Zero for smoking status meant that the participant never smoked. 0 0.5 for smoking status meant that was an intermediate health score. And that meant that uh, maybe the participant used to smoke, but they don't anymore. And then one was a poor score. So for, current, for uh, smoking status, it would be a current smoker. So these factors were scored from zero to one in sort of this way, and then they were averaged together to determine 
whether the subject had ideal, intermediate, or poor cardiovascular health score. And with these, they did some fancy math, some fancy statistics to look at how all these factors were influencing one another. And we'll get more into that in a second. But first, we'll summarize the participant group. So about 80% of the participants slept an average amount, which they defined between six to nine hours while about 15% of the participants had long sleep, which means that they slept for more than nine hours on average. And about two to 3% had short sleep, which is less than six hours on average. They found that people who had sleep debt were more often younger, divorced, or single. So I feel like they're really coming from my throat here. <laughs> Um, but people with sleep debt were also more likely to have an income of at least $50,000 compared to those who didn't have sleep debt. The participants uh, with more sleep debt also were more likely to have history of high blood pressure or hypertension. Uh, history of diabetes tended to be less physically active and tended to be less likely to report consuming alcohol. So all of these are factors that come into play when we're considering cardio health, which is why they're reported here. Next, Cabeza de Baca and colleagues used some fancy statistics magic to see if and potentially how factors like age, ethnicity, socioeconomic status, stress levels, depression, anxiety, etc., impact the association or the relationship between sleep debt and ideal cardiovascular health. So with this stats magic, which is called multinomial logistic regression, we can answer questions like, does our age affect the relationship between sleep debt and ideal cardio health? How about do our age and ethnicity affect this relationship and so on? Honk if you love science. <laughs> okay. Um, so they, they include these factors into a statistical model to see if and how the relationship between sleep debt and cardio health changes. And from this analysis, they get what's called an odds ratio, which can tell us the likelihood of one outcome over another based on the model, right? So in this case, the likelihood of poor cardiovascular help, cardiovascular health in people with sleep debt versus those who don't have sleep debt. They also did a regression analysis, which can tell us how strong the relationship is between sleep debt and ideal cardiovascular health. From this, we can get an idea of the strength based on the steepness of the line when we plot these variables against each other with this model. Um, we get a value called beta or B, where a negative B value means that cardiovascular health is lower than ideal when sleep debt is present. So it's like a negative association. So to get to the results, when they didn't adjust for any factors and they just looked at sleep debt versus cardio health, they found that participants who had sleep debt or like irregular sleep schedule between the work week and the weekend, those people were significantly more likely to have poor cardiovascular health 
with an odds ratio of 1.57. So in other words, people with sleep debt are 1.57 times more likely to have poor cardiovascular health compared to people who don't have sleep debt. And then further, sleep debt and quality of cardiovascular health were correlated with each other, and the B value was a negative number, negative 0.12. Um, but when talking about correlations, this is just in general now, not specific to this study. When talking about correlations, it's important to understand that just because two things are correlated with one another doesn't mean that one causes the other. That's like the golden rule of statistics, I think, that correlation does not imply causation. A fun homework assignment, JK, LOL. But if you're bored, you can Google spurious correlations and you'll see exactly what I mean. There are a lot of things that are like correlated with each other, that change with each other, but have nothing to do with one another. And one definitely doesn't cause the other. So that's a fun little, you know, interactive experiment to do. But anyway, okay, so when they didn't include factors, they found that people were 1.5 times more likely to have poor cardiovascular health if they had sleep debt, right? When they included all of these factors in the association model, so the factors like age, ethnicity, income, et cetera, the association model between sleep debt and cardio health were still significant, but the odds ratio and the B values were lower than the initial results. So the odds ratio was 1.39 instead of 1.57, which told the researchers, which told the authors, that this could mean the association between sleep debt and cardio health is affected by factors like age, ethnicity, income, education, depression, etc. So like hypothetically, the association between the two, the two variables, sleep debt and cardio health, might get stronger or weaker depending on a person's stress levels, depending on a person's age or whatever. Oh my God, my phone is buzzing. I heard something and I was like, what the frick is that? It's my phone. Hold on. Okay. Hi, sorry. We're back. My mother called me. My mom called me. Mother is what you call your mom when you don't like her, but I love my mom. My mom called me, which is why uh, the do not disturb did not work. And that's why my phone was buzzing. But anyway, she kept going on and on about how postage is going up. And I'm like, Ma, I got science to Sam's plane. I'll call you later. But anyway, so as I was saying, these factors, hypothetically, the association might get stronger or weaker depending on these factors, depending on a person's stress level at a certain age, whatever. They actually did try to look into this a little bit more by stratifying or breaking up the group into younger participants and older participants with the cutoff being 75 years old. So when they split up the participants by age, they found out in the younger group, so women younger than 75, sleep debt was still significantly associated with poor cardio health, just like when we were looking at the participants altogether. But the association wasn't significant when we looked at only women older 75, which could tell us that maybe the whole group analysis was sort of driven by the data from the younger women, which could also beg the question, does this mean that we get more resilient to sleep debt when we get older? Like, 
there are more studies that can be done to solidify these results is more just like exploratory seeing what would happen if we did this all right so what does this tell us what does all of this tell us the study finds that even when we consider factors that might influence measurements of cardio health there's still a significant association between sleep debt and poor cardio health though of course we didn't forget that correlation doesn't imply causation we can still acknowledge that the study does show that the odds of having poor cardio health are higher with sleep debt. So there is some risk associated with dysregulated sleep, even if it's not directly causing cardio health issues. So the authors acknowledge that poor cardio health might also be partially caused by other factors, including genetics, including psychological factors or stressors, environmental stressors, etc. But they also say that variability in sleep duration could be contributing to cardiac health because the sleep variability could influence the body's circadian rhythm. As we talked about earlier, we know the circadian rhythm can impact things like blood pressure, appetite, hormones, etc. And speaking of hormones, sleep deprivation and insufficient sleep can also mess up what's called the HPA axis or the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis. And this is a system in your body that's responsible for release and regulation of hormones, including cortisol, the stress hormone. So cortisol itself can impact the circadian rhythm too. So basically this is like it leads to even more dysregulation of sleep. It's a cycle of sleep dysregulation doom. It gets very complicated. There's a ton of factors that could play into exactly how poor sleep interacts with our heart health. But what I took away from this study is that the results shown here support the idea of a good old six to eight hours a night, every single night idea that we hear all the time, right? To reduce the risk of poor heart health, just stick to the average stereotypical sleep advice, which to be fair, is easier said than done. I am, I totally understand that. <laughs> so kind of pulling this all together now, even though very successful people like to brag about losing out on sleep or having irregular sleep schedules to make themselves quote unquote more successful, the studies we talked about today show that maybe this type of mentality isn't that beneficial to us after all, at least not for our bodies and not for our minds. So in conclusion, go to bed. That message really is just directly at Sam, at me. Go to bed. Put the phone away. Twitter can wait till the morning. Close your eyes. Go to sleep. <laughs> oh, that was a lot of science. Dare I say I'm tired. I'm ready for some sleep. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> All right. Before I say bye, I'll do the obnoxious request of asking you to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast wherever you're listening. So be prepared. Incoming. <clears throat> Please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast wherever you're listening. 
I really do truly appreciate the reviews that I got for the first episode. Um, they made my heart very happy. So if you feel so inclined and you'd like to, please do leave a review for this episode. Um, you can also keep in touch by following the podcast on Twitter and Instagram. Both are at Sigh. You can tell me what you think about the episode, ask follow-up questions, or suggest a topic for future episodes if there's anything else that you might want to learn about. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. I hope you learned a little bit and laughed a little bit, and I'll talk to you next week. Bye.